0: Two of some like it Scott. I'm your host Scott Harvey, and I'm joined as always by my co-host Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, we're wishing for our hearts' desire in our review of George Miller's fantastical romance, Three Thousand Years of Longing. But first, how are you, Scott?
1: Feeling pretty good, feeling refreshed. Back from vacation we did take last week off, as I took my yearly pilgrimage to Cincinnati, Ohio to watch tennis. Came back and. Yeah, I got to see got to see this film. I I feel like we talk enough about on the podcast. Maybe we don't actually do. We don't get the chance to talk too much about how much I like Mad Max Fury Road on the podcast. It's come up before, but it's not one of the things that we just continue to repeat over and over. So, yeah, I mean, I don't even know if we knew at the time of most anticipated movies that this film was coming out this year, just because that's feels that feels like the nature of George Miller making film is that you have no idea when a movie is going to come out. but when we saw that it was debuting at Cannes, it was like, that's that's pretty neat. Um, so needless to say, I've been excited all week to, to see this film and then getting to see it and getting to talk about it now, but doing well.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the marketing is also part of it because a lot of people have commented on this, but it just feels like it's crazy that, um, you know, we have a new movie coming out. First movie in seven years from the person who made, you know, a huge movie, Mad Max Fury Road. and People are like finding out about it the week before it comes out, like just because it just MGM just hasn't marketed the movie, like it just yeah, it's
1: it's it's definitely one an MGM problem, but also two, just like how do you market this movie? (laughs) Like I I mean, it is very how to market this movie. (laughs)
0: This (laughs) is definitely, I mean, we'll get to the review in a moment. But this is definitely like his one for him, right after doing. The one for you with uh, with that Max Ferry Road, which even his one for you, is, okay, is the one for out, all of us, a <laughs> little, yeah. little out there. I mean, even yeah. even that's a little out there, but this sure, is, sure. you know, something completely different. But it's you know, not, Scott, not my favorite talk- movie
1: of all time. It's fine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> only the, only the second uh, favorite movie of all time. But yeah. um, as mentioned, Scott, we're already talking about it. Our film today is Three Thousand Years of Longing, the first film in seven years from Australian maestro George Miller and his first since the decade-defining action-epic Mad Max Fury Road. 3,000 Years of Longing may not be as heavy metal as Fury Road, but it's no less ambitious as it tells the story of Alethea Benny, a British woman who works as a narrativologist, played by Tilda Swinton, aka someone who is obsessed with stories. While abroad on a speaking engagement, Alethea picks up an old lamp at an, an antique store, and when she accidentally opens it the next morning, you guessed it, a genie, or in this case, a djinn, emerges. But this djinn is no Robin Williams. He's a hulking beast of a man, played by Idris Elba. And when Althea frees him, it's the first time he's been out of the lamp in thousands of years. You know the drill with what happens next. Althea gets three wishes. However, someone who knows stories as well as Althea does knows that the genie stories usually end up as cautionary tales and is therefore hesitant to use her wishes at all, especially because she seems mostly content with her life of solitude. However, the djinn soon begins to share with her stories of his own, about his life in and out of the lamp, which traces all the way back to the time of ancient civilizations. And as he does, a newfound purpose and passion seems to emerge in Alethea, causing her to worry whether these wishes, wonder whether these wishes could help her fill a void in her life she may not have known was there. Scott, 3,000 Years of Longing is a significant departure from Fury Road, but does George Miller's melancholy love story feature the same imagination and ingenuity that made his last film an instant classic, or is it a navel-gazing fantasy not worth the seven-year wait?
1: Yeah, for me, it's more of the former, absolutely. I think that it's, just on on its surface, and I'd see also at a deeper level, this film is very different from Mad Max Fury Road from... You know, half of the films he's making. I mean, it's basically the same as Happy Feet 2, but you know, Mad Max Fury Road, it's a sure. departure from. You no, know, that yeah, I mean, George Miller's known for for really mixing it up um on the types of movies that that he does for, for sure. And this one feels different. I, I mean the I feel like the if you've looked into this movie at all, you kind of know that this 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 is a movie he's been trying he's been wanting to make for decades, but sort of like James Cameron and, and his avatar sequels waited until the technology sort of existed for him to really realize his vision in, in the way that he wanted it to be. And I think that's such a critical component to this film is the vision that he has for it. I mean, on, on paper, honestly, Scott, like this is not the kind of movie that that should work for me as someone who really doesn't yeah, I mean, like voiceover in film. Really? I mean, I'm, I'm really someone who's partial to movies that take full advantage of the medium. And I don't think that on paper, this is necessarily a movie that, that would you would expect to do that. It is essentially a talkie where one person tells another person, you know, three or four, you know, longer form stories and it's interwoven with, you know, whatever interactions that they're having between the stories. It, it doesn't seem like something that you need to put onto the screen that you could just read in the form of a book and be perfectly content. And this is based on, this is based on, I believe, a short story or a novel um, as well. But, and this is what I don't want to say makes the film unique, but is what something that's just so special about George Miller's filmmaking is that he takes something that on paper doesn't seem like it necessarily needs to become a movie. And he makes something that just feels like it's wholly unique to the, to the film medium. Like you just could, you couldn't imagine, you know, consuming the story in any other way. And, and that's because of the vision that George Miller as a, you know, a director, as a storyteller, I think brings to the table when telling the story, the way he takes advantage of the visuals of the film where he pushes you know, Mad Max Fury Road, obviously sort of known for how incredible the visuals and the realistic stunts and um I shouldn't say realistic some <laughs> not many of them are realistic, but the but the um you know non-CGI stunts um and practical. what it's able to yeah. what'd you say? I said practical. There we go. That's definitely work. the word I was looking yeah. for. The practical <laughs> stunts and whatnot. And and this is not that there's also not elements of that as well, but there's so much of this that th- that's then taking that. That and saying, all right, what like wh- how far can we push CGI, um, you know, almost animation and creatures and fantastical beings and fantastical situations and moments. Um, and it's all in his head. It, it's so clear that he has just like this, this very salient image in his head when he's making these movies. And I think his ability to translate that to the screen, to communicate that to the performances that you get. I mean, yes, Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton are in this movie. There's lots of other people in this movie. No way you've heard of any of them. Um, they're just all completely random people. I'd never heard well, of before.
0: Was that not Rosamund Pike for not even having any lines in the movie? Oh, maybe. I didn't notice
1: that. I'm pretty so. sure
0: she was the the woman in the red dress, the laughing one or whatever, during the story. That um, Oh, maybe. The second story that he tells. I mean, it looks exactly like her if it wasn't her. But she doesn't have any lines, so I was really confused by that.
1: Yeah, I didn't – I mean, I didn't go down the full IMDb cast list to see if she's like a credited cameo or whatever with no lines. Okay. But, yeah, I mean, I didn't recognize any of the significant people. I was quickly browsing afterwards, and it doesn't seem like any of these people have been in basically anything before, like maybe some like random short films, um, non-English language. But, yeah, it's just just pretty remarkable, I think, what he's able to – Accomplish visually in the film, and and I think ultimately that probably is the big, like the the best way to advertise this movie is that it's a really compelling story that's sort of told with these really enigmatic visuals, um, really trying to stretch it as far as it can go in terms of what's possible visually. It's not Avatar, like it's not what you. would ex- It's not like a bunch of blue people swimming around under the ocean for two and a half hours, which is probably what's going to be you know have a you know the way of water this december but it, it it feels something that is of a of like a similar intent it feels like this idea of like we're going to tell you this you know generational spanning you know a- era spanning story of this person or this i shouldn't say person this gin over time and we're going to show you like biblical era we're going to show you middle middle ages and then you know we're going to take you all the way to the present and i think that It's this really sort of immaculate effort to sort of tell the seamless story that uh, I think the one the one word that came to mind after as I was sort of sitting in the theater as the credits roll is like I was just utterly enthralled by by the film the entire time I was watching it. it. I never really felt snapped out of the moment. I never really felt anything except transported to, you know, where George Miller's head was at when he was making this film. And, you know, Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton, I think, did a really, really good job embodying these characters bringing a lot of i don't know i don't know what the right word is like a, like um magnetism almost to to the screen i think i, I was just like i, I was reading a, a, a review afterwards that's talking about how there's i think it was david Ehrlich's review saying that tilda swinton is the only person on earth who who would ever play a narratologist Alethea benny like you just can't <laughs> imagine anyone else playing playing yeah. that role and i think that's probably right um especially the the way she plays it and and what she brings to the role like None of her characters are the same. Like, she's not playing the same character over and over again in movies. Um, but at the same time, she is playing the same character over and over again in movies, I feel like. Um, even something like Memoria last year. Um, you know, the Jim Jarmusch movie from a couple years. She's just playing the same character. Like, she brings this sort of ethereal nature to all the characters she plays. That's um, It's kind of hard to take your eyes off of. I think it's really strong. I guess la- last thing before I throw things over to you is practice. it's Just like when I'm thinking about the cinematography of this film, I like walk into this movie, and even from like the first scene, like what George Miller and his cinematographer, which is I think John Seal, is doing at the camera here is just like you just don't like it's just not the kind of movie that you do these sort of like cinematography tricks for. Like the way that it it pans around, like kind of goes in and goes back out in the same conversation. And it's just it, the camera's moving a lot and. But like not in a distracting way, in a way that really enhances the experience. And I think that's one of the really special things about the kind of filmmaker that that Miller is. Um, also, Tom Holkenberg, um, Junkie XL, uh, doing doing the score here appropriately epic. I mean, th- he did the score for Mad Max: Fury Road, and I think maybe a couple other of of Miller's movies as well. And um, a really fantastic partnership between the two of them. So. Really, a thumbs up all around for me. I really found this film quite transporting, quite enthralling, um, and a great way to spend, you know, 100 and 105 minutes.
0: Yeah, I mean, you certainly don't see this type of cinematography in a studio, big studio film like no, this um, no. anymore. Uh, Except for
1: like Nope think... or something like
0: that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but even still, I think this is even more out there than Nope. But, oh,
1: sure. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, what it's doing is <clears throat> Nope was doing something unique because of the type yeah. of story it was telling and this is doing just something like here let me show you how to move a camera around a room with people in a way that's just like you know kind of perfect
0: yeah i mean again <laughs> it's a blank check movie like we were saying you know he sure. he got yeah. what he wanted to do after uh, after making something as successful as mad max ray Road, and that that shows in the movie and i think it's something that we should not um take for granted because these movies are probably going to be uh, even sparser uh, than usual uh, as time goes on, but yes, yeah, Scott, I enjoyed it too, um, and and I, I'm with you. You know, it it isn't something that I would normally enjoy either, just because of the fantasy element. Sure. Um, but you know, I think that this is a movie about storytelling at the end of the day, and anyone who loves movies loves storytelling and so on that level you can certainly connect with it um and i think in that regard too there's this you know sort of meta element obviously um that really this movie is just a an excuse for george miller to just flex how good he is at telling stories um because two-thirds of the movie is primarily just idris elba telling these you know um old stories about his life you know in and out of the lamp in like ancient civilizations and, and he's on. really Stories just narrating it
1: it's not like yeah it's not like these like we, it's not like you see setups in movies where it's like i'm going to tell you something that happened in the past and it like literally transports you and like you, yeah. you see the scene play out and, like he's just narrating the whole time which i think is one of the remarkable things about the film
0: yeah uh upon further research i'm not seeing anything about rosamund Pike being in there which is shocking to me because i could have sworn that was her but um anyway that's, that's
1: it could be a, it could on. be an uncredited cameo you never know
0: yeah But yeah, this is just an excuse really for him to show off his, you know, imagination and ability at building worlds and telling stories about, you know, the people in those worlds. Um, And, you know, in that regard, I think it's very transportive. It's everything you want it to be, Um, even though he's telling these sort of, you know, um, Alibaba-esque stories. Yeah. Thousand and One Arabian Nights. in theory in theory you've heard before um you, you still get you know swept away by the the vision with which he tells them and and you know he obviously does put his own spin on it um and there's there's some directions uh that will probably um cause some people to turn up their nose a little bit or uh be uh be a little turned off by the movie, but that's fine. Uh, I'm sure there were people who reacted the same way to Fury Road, even. But, um, but yeah, then the movie has the third act, um, which is maybe where it takes it down a little bit um, for me. Uh, like, I, I don't know that I ended up liking it quite as much as you did. Um, I definitely think it's ultimately successful with what it tries to do in the third act. I just think that it is uneven, and there's some things that start getting introduced, some ideas that start getting introduced that I was like, oh, hold on, wait a second, like, this is coming out of nowhere, kind of, um, this particular theme, which I'm sure we can get to, but. You're talking um, about the neighbor,
1: like the neighbors, or?
0: Yes, yeah. um, and specifically what, yeah, what they tell, what they are talking about during their first interaction, um, kind of comes out of nowhere, I mean, like, it's a, it's a nice sentiment, obviously, um, what we ultimately get to, but, Um, I don't know that that was what I thought the movie was about um, until we got to the third act. But yeah, yeah, I think it ends on a nice note. I think, Um, you know, I was interested to see where it was going to go once we got out of the confines of this hotel room and the stories that Idris Elba was telling. Um, And I think it strikes a nice, you know, melancholy note there in the end, bittersweet note in the end that feels... Feels right. It feels realistic, despite the fact that so much of this movie is not realistic. Um, I, you know, I, I appreciated that. So, <clears throat> yeah, I think it's a really successful movie. I, um, I don't know why it's not getting received a little bit better. Um, maybe some people are just not smoking that what George what George Miller is dishing out. But um, <clears throat> I, I thought, you know, as a as a vehicle for um, you know the the storytelling abilities of someone with the imagination of george miller it's it's perfect and it's really hard not to get swept away by the world and um, the characters he creates. <clears throat> and I think you know that Alethea and you know the Jen are two strong characters and have really good you know chemistry with each other and you mentioned you know there's a bunch of other actors and random people that show up over the course of the movie and, you know, they're fine, but this is really a two-hander. And, um, those, those two actors are more than capable of carrying, carrying the load of the movie, um, from beginning to end. So I thought, um, it was all around, you know, successful and yeah, worth the wait. I mean, it's not a Fury Road level epic masterpiece, but, it's a type of movie we're <clears throat> we're not getting anymore, and which we're gonna get even less of probably. Um, so I'm I was glad to have seen it, and glad to have seen it in theater.
1: Um, I think a lot of people probably are not receiving the third act well.
0: Yeah, I think probably that's probably well. the point of contention as well. Yeah, but Scott, before we talk about that, let's talk about performances maybe a little bit more. We got Tilda Swinton um you've already given some thoughts on her we got Idris Elba as well um this is his second straight movie second straight week with a movie coming out in theaters obviously last week he had Beast
1: and neither Um, film made any money
0: (laughs) yeah um
1: one of them expected to
0: make it, name the other not probably he's still a, a genuine movie star for sure um and I'm wondering what you think about his performance and anything else you want to say about Tilda
1: yeah, I really, I really liked his performance. I, I feel like he fully embodied this role as, as the gin. You you mentioned in the sort of setup where, especially when he, when he first comes out of, out of the, the bottle, the, I don't even know, I guess it was like a, almost like a mini little vase. Um, he really, I mean, it, it takes a while for him to size adjust to the space. And I feel like, I feel like his His commanding presence in films. he's like really able to, I think introduce himself in a very sort of believable you know, big gin in in a small hotel room kind of way. that's a weird thing to say, probably. but I feel like it's so believable. It's so believable that that the the performance he gives as this sort of like otherworldly, almost fantastical being. Who's has this sort of world weariness that you'd believe he's been around for thousands of years. And one of the things that I really like about the performance is that, I mean, like ultimately I think you you do at least I came away with thinking that he was being candid the entire time he was telling us stories, but I really like the sort of almost mystery around this sort of like consistently drip fed mystery of like, is he being honest with her? About everything, like it, like is he? Do you, are you sure that he's being on it? Like I did, kind of like that. and I think he was it. He was able to add a level of melancholy where your brain is saying, like you probably shouldn't trust this creature, but like it's just such a good, like it's just, it's such a, it's almost like at a meta level, it's like such a good performance of this person performing these stories that it it really lends itself to the believability of you know this you know millennia old being. I do ultimately, this film's a two-hander. I think that's true. I don't think this film at all works without Idris Elba really being able to effectively narrate, you know, the first half or two-thirds of this film. And so I don't think it can be understated um, how important, maybe even more so than Tilda Swinton's performance is, in just making, I think, a part of the film, you know, a portion of the film that everyone can agree is, like, really compelling um, work in a really compelling way. It's just really it's almost impossible to make the first half of the film work without without his granted that element of it is almost a voice performance, but that's saying a lot because I don't I don't think that's easy to do, um, at least not in a way that works for me always. So big kudos to that to really bring sort of like you can you can feel his energy levels like sort of ebb and flow at, over the course of time stories as you reach different parts. And there's just a lot of soul, I think. Um in in the cadence at which he tells the stories. So a big, a big um sort of round of applause for that carrying that element of the film.
0: Yeah. I mean he's someone that I always enjoy, but there's oftentimes in movies that I don't really like, sure. um, you know, he's done a lot of franchise stuff. He's been in Marvel movies, he's been, in Hobbs he's been and Black Shaw.
1: Superman. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um
0: yeah. And, and but you know he's someone that I enjoy when he shows up. So it's nice that, you know, now he's in a movie that, I mean, he has been, you know, he was in The Heart of the Fall, obviously, last year. But um, it's nice, you know, to see him in something where I think he really gets to show off his acting chops. This might be my favorite performance, honestly, that I've seen from him. Um, I think he does a really good job here. Um, and yeah, it's his size and all that, obviously the physical presence fits the character well, but um, there's a vulnerability also to the character which is a nice contrast and complement to um you know his his initially very physically imposing size and you know manner of speaking maybe um and in general like you know narration is not always the the easiest thing to do from an acting perspective um obviously we saw a movie earlier this year that was almost completely narration um with apollo 10 and a half but know i think jack black did a great job there and i think he does a really good job here obviously he has the compliment of you know the visuals also conveying what he is telling in the story and the visuals being very you know as we've already said um impressive but the entire movie and their relationship is kind of premised on her being so swept away by the stories and you know transported by his ability with uh, for spinning a story that um she falls in love with him right uh, because she is such a stories are everything to her basically she's you know based her entire career and life around it um, and now she finds somebody who is seemingly in a similar position to her and he's also spinning these great stories um and i I, I got it like I thought it all made sense that you know when the movie makes the the choice to take that shift which is kind of i guess kind of starting the third act a little bit um is when Althea kind of says you know i've decided i want my first wish to be that you know i we fall in love that yeah. that you love me basically yeah uh because i love you um so i thought all i thought all of that worked um and tilda swinton yeah i think is really good as well you know she is such a versatile performer, like she just shows up in so many different types of movies, you know, is not afraid to, uh, you know, do do whatever the role requires. I mean, she played a man in uh, Suspiria recently. Um, We've seen her in all manner of, you know, crazy outfits and hairstyles and all that type of stuff. Um, And, you know, I I think, she always, you know, finds the humanity within the characters that she's playing. Um, it's it's great that, you know, someone who's such a you could say is an oddball performer, I think, continues to get such high profile roles and is held in such high regard by so many major filmmakers. Because if you look at all the filmmakers that she's worked with, um, it, you know, she's got a real hit list there, I think, within her filmography. But um, but yeah, I think yeah, the she's Russo really brothers.
1: Good. Yeah, I mean, incredible. <laughs>
0: um she you know um she she does that like that maybe this isn't the most uh out there role that she's ever played um because she's doing sort of a you know nervous academic woman uh you know which is honestly you know we saw her she was in the french dispatch last year as well um not playing a dissimilar role um you know, Memoria, yes, to some extent also. Not, of course, as dialed up as she is in something but like this. She is a Memoria scholarly
1: is. person in Memoria.
0: Memoria is the definition of, like, right. a low-key movie. But, yes, she she absolutely is. And, obviously, she's in that movie, she's being sort of haunted and disturbed by this force that's, you know, making her, making her nervous. And here, she does a good job here of, like, making us a little unsure of whether you know is she obviously she's kind of in solitude um she doesn't really have any friends she doesn't have a husband anything like that um it, making us wonder is this the life that she really wants because she says it is um or is there is there still something within her that uh, you know is wanting for more is wanting for companionship um is wanting for someone to share life with um, and i think that tension is, you know, necessary for, to the movie for her to, you know, eventually make that decision that she does make uh, to, with her first wish and with her second wish too. But, um, but yeah, I, uh, I thought both performances really strong, like I said before, they're definitely more than enough to carry the movie through um, to the finish line on their own. Yeah. Um.
1: Swinton has just said, I know I think I said this early on, but just to throw it in there, like it's sort of almost inherent in all the movies that you're also throwing out there that she has a similar presence in. But it's just like there's just something particularly magnetic about her ability just to hold your hold your gaze on the screen. There's something that's just like I just find myself hanging on every word in her movies. And, and there's just a certain quality to. know her screen presence the performance she gives it's just very it's very it's very enthralling and i can't put my
0: finger on it what it is about it i think it's a combination of like her performances and also just her physical appearance because she doesn't look like other actresses she doesn't look like you know a a movie star um which I, i wouldn't say that she is necessarily like she can't carry a movie well, she can't yeah. sell a movie on her man,
1: she she can't so. open a movie, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah exactly um, but um, I, so you know she has that sort of striking physical appearance on her own, but then again, she's always changing it up too for for her films um yeah. so I think I think I do think that is part of like her allure, I guess um as an actress,
1: yeah, I don't know. But, I haven't seen the souvenir movies, but I assume <clears throat> learn those as well
0: right she is in those well actually yeah because her her daughter isn't it is the the lead of those movies so
1: yeah i mean Um, they're the mother-daughter relationship in the the movies
0: um but yeah scott um i think we can move on now just talk a little bit about the third act because it is probably the big talking point of the movie like you said it probably it does seem to be the most divisive part of the movie um this is where um the stories idris elba stories have kind of kind of ended, and now the time has really come for Alethea to make her wishes. And like we've already said, her first wish is for them to be together and love each other, basically, Um, which they are, they go back to London where Alethea lives. And, um, you know, they spend some time together there. We don't know exactly how much, but obviously a significant amount of time passes. Um, And ultimately, um, she senses that he is not feeling at home or feeling himself, basically, um, while they're in London. And a lot of it has to do with sort of these electromagnetic, re- you know, receptions that he waves, is getting. Yeah. Um, waves, yeah. Because um, he's like, a, his body's like a transmitter and there's all this, you know, obviously because going Yeah, on there, it's
1: like earlier on in the movie, it basically explains how his physical being is... Like basically an aggregation of electromagnetic waves, and so when they return to London, I don't know why this wasn't the case also in Istanbul, but when they return to London, these other waves of these cell towers and you know radio towers and things like that are essentially weakening him, like they're killing him. Basically, is what it seems like. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, And so after sensing that, Althea decides I'm going to use my second wish, basically, to say you just need to be wherever you want to be.
1: Um, that that's actually her last wish. She uses her second wish to t- at, tell him to speak again when he's like in the basement.
0: Right, 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 you're yeah. right, yeah. Um her, yeah, her third wish is to is to say release um, him basically, yeah. Yeah. Be be where you want to be. Be free. Um and right. he he is and he leaves, but yeah. in the final scene of the movie, we see basically that he he comes back and visits her every so often. Um and that's kind of how the movie ends. Of course, you know, not on the fairy tale note necessarily that the movie sets up, um, because the whole thing is sort of narrated by Althea saying, "Oh, this is you know a fairy tale." Well, she's actually writing her own story down, but yeah. Um, but yeah, Scott, what did you think about the way that the movie chooses to end? Again, not with the traditional happy ending, I guess. Um, and I guess just just the direction that the movie decides to go in heading back to London. What did you think that that did for the overall themes about storytelling and everything else that's in the movie?
1: Yeah, it's definitely a a left turn for the film. I don't know if I was necessarily expecting to spend, you know, half the last 20 to 30 minutes of the film, you know, in a completely different setting. I wasn't necessarily expecting that. And just, just in terms of the parts of the film that you're talking about, I actually think that works quite well. Um, I was a little bit hesitant at first, but then when you really, I think, drill down into really thinking about and taking Alethea's perspective of the of the film. Someone who is like, you know, this, this meta storyteller who overanalyzes and overthinks all kinds of stories, who is taking this perspective and applying it to the stories that Jen is telling up until the point where she... It is just so swept away by that last story that the Jen tells that she sort of just like succumbs to, you know, real like appreciating that, you know, her life of solidarity is, is something that she's been happy with, but isn't necessarily as fulfilling as, as what the Jen has described to her and the stories that he's told is not as she doesn't, see, she doesn't really perceive that as fulfilling. And I think that, that the the final act of the film when you, when you really sort of try to tie those two parts together, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think she's someone who's able to sort of remove herself from her like raw emotions as a character and appreciate the story of it all and other people's perspectives and that aren't as sort of gl- like glued and in the moment. In the stories and i think that it provides a sort of unique sensibility to the character of Althea, who's able to sort of say you know this fairy tale story that i sort of devised for myself by making this wish is not it's not the right outcome it's not a good outcome um as you know someone who is a narratologist you know knows that this is not a good outcome and there's a way for everyone to be happy in the story because i think that she knows her although again maybe there there is a sense of longing for this <coughs> this this companionship but like Alethea as a, as a human was happy and was content even without it and i think there's an element of recognition of that there's an element of appreciation of of that she in spite of her you know meta awareness isn't it still sort of like succumbs to this idea of making wishes and and wishing for things that get her into trouble ultimately in the grand scheme of things and and don't actually lead to the outcomes that she desires. And I think in that sense that those, although it, I think it does to, it did take a moment for me to sort of pause and really reflect on the narrative arc of Alathea's character over the course of the last act. I think ultimately it does make a lot of sense. I think her releasing the gin, it makes sense on multiple levels. It makes sense because she loves him and wants him to, to not suffer and to not, to not be this way. And also Recognizes that, like the the act of wishing for this is is maybe ultimately what doomed this the the very micro like situation that they're in. And I think that, given everything that happens in the first half to two thirds of the film, I think that's something as a as a character trait of Althea that I think is very believable. um And I think it's sort of sort of one with with the whole development that that the journey that she's on as she listens to these stories and then reckons with the wish that she makes.
0: Yeah, um, I, I think the part of it that works for me is there's there's also this sort of past story that she tells. The one story that she kind of tells is about right. her and this ex husband, yeah. Fantastical creature. Well, not even that. This, oh, okay. this Sorry. fantastical like fantastical creature that appears to her when she's a child. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Enzo being his name. I'm, I mean, actually, I just kind of not- think of it just
1: as an imaginary friend. Is that, was that not? Yeah, that? yeah. Okay, yeah.
0: Um, but she kind of suppresses it um, and yeah. basically cuts him out of, of her her life. Um, and now it seems like this is sort of a second chance for her to, you know, embrace that and embrace stories in a way that she um, yeah did not before. And, I, you know, there's the scene, Out, you know, the neighbors don't necessarily work for me, totally. Um, That's probably my least favorite part of the movie. Um, Basically, she gets home and the neighbors are being racist. And she kind of lashes out at them. Um, And then there's a conversation that they have her and the gen that's like her talking about there's so much hate in the world and we want you know love to overcome hate and it just it took a left turn for me like that i wasn't expecting however there's then the, then this scene where they actually go to the house of the neighbors her and the gin. and the gin again i think you could argue that this is a bit
1: heavy-handed and i think there's like multiple things that go into the neighbors one of which is actually i think the story that you're telling i think or the the, inma- the story of the imaginary friend I think that's like yeah. a really critical component of understanding what's going yeah, on thematically with the neighbors um but but to more directly to your question I think the the part of it there is that this idea of I think it's it's a lot harder I think when you lay eyes on like the object of scorn or ridicule or racism sexism etc I think it's it's a lot harder once you you know he's not a human but like when you humanize this notion of of this thing that you are sort of othering or lessening. I think it's a lot harder to sort of maintain that otherness and that um sort of inferiority. Not that it it doesn't happen, it does, but I think that's this idea of like this olive branch in, involved with actually sort of meeting like the the humanized persona of the thing that you dehumanize. I think there's a like there's a really strong element there. And it's clearly something that, that Miller's interested in, because I think that's what he's trying to do with this scene. I I, it, I think it is the thing that works the least in the film, but it, not in such a way that, that really detracts in a in a hard way because I, I just think that there's just a lot of intelligence in the way the story is being told. Even though it takes a very sharp turn in that third act to where it goes, I still think that the threads all sort of connect in a way that um, I upon reflection, it, it ties together well. I do think that there's an element of, I guess, just to put a bow on the question you asked the the fact that, that these two like the Jen who, who knows about their racism um, and these, you know, these older women who probably don't ever meet, you know, minorities, people of color as they sort of stay locked up in their, in their house. And it is, it is a reductive way I think to portray maybe racism. Although I don't know how you knew, like, I don't know how in a nuanced way you portray racism in this movie. I mean,
0: yeah, it's not a nuanced idea. So
1: Exactly right. Um, but yeah, I anyway, yeah, I think that there's a way of co- like connecting those dots in a way yeah. that sort of lessens the tension so, there and, and opens people's eyes up to to what they're doing. And I still think that that ties back into earlier in the film as well with all these stories, because the, the gin is traveling through time interacting with these different people who fall in love with him or have a relate or or don't or have just have a relationship with him that that you know takes advantage of his powers. But that these people are like surrounded by others who don't really accept the Jinn as as a like as a you know as a human, as a person. I'm thinking this I'm gonna be specifically the first story um where it's not racism. I mean, he's literally surrounded by people of a similar skin tone to him, but this idea of like, he's a, this othering of, of the Jen, like the, you know, queen Sheba is using him for his powers and, and sort of toying with him. And, and he's sort of held at arm's length by the rest of the court or whatever. And is, you know, then like physically placed into a bottle by this, you know, the white King Solomon. Um, I I think there's, there's touches of it earlier on in the film. um, as well for it not to come as out of nowhere as I think a lot of people sort of described it, but I do think it's still, it's not, it's not as consistent consistently sort of like placed throughout as, as one might hope if, if it is going to take on as a serious role in the final act of the film.
0: Yeah. I I hear what you're saying. I think that that's just a little attenuated for me, but I I don't think that, yeah, Yeah. I don't think that the neighbor scene works um on the level of like here's the you know object of their racism like now in, in um physical manifestation in front of them i do think it kind of works though as her finally embracing because okay yeah maybe oh yeah
1: here yeah the other side of the people here.
0: can people can see him but she mm-hmm. has not really allowed him to be seen
1: um, yes that is definitely anyway. true yeah
0: um but this is the first time that she does and it i think it is her kind of embracing her love for storytelling and like the yeah. idea that that can be enough sh- uh,
1: sharing her the something that's near and dear to her you know her what imagination. she
0: previously yeah. rejected in the form of enzo yep um and sh- showing that not not just showing that to anyone but showing that to people that she does not have a good relationship
1: with, that she hates right? so. like
0: that she does not like yes um her neighbors and who would presumably hate hate him right um and her <laughs> so i think it works on that level because that i think is yeah you know a thread that continues throughout the movie obviously that's a
1: really good point yeah i really agree with that
0: on anything else i don't know but um but yeah I, it's it's a curious scene in the movie i guess i i think it's probably a scene that people are gonna scratch their heads about a little bit the, the people who are coming out of the movie confused a little by the third act i think maybe that scene is one of the one of the reasons why just sort of what what exactly happens there what is that supposed to signify um i guess another thing scott is you know we mentioned his second wish or her second wish uh, that he speaks again is it just that the reception the uh, waves and everything is that what is making him physically the way that he is is there something else to it no i think that's what it is yeah yeah um and then uh, the last last thing I'm, I'm curious about is do you think there's anything to the idea that Alethea might be a djinn of some sort or a child of a djinn um, because there is at least one scene where actually it's with the neighbors it's the first neighbor scene where she she also seems to be picking up all of the waves and everything that's going on there the cacophonous noise that is happening it's not just them talking it is um she she starts hearing all of the other sounds as well um like basically what the gin is experiencing um i have seen like a couple people toss around that question i don't know if you have any thoughts on it or if it's something you thought about at all
1: yeah that's that's interesting that is a really interesting question i didn't read it like that but i do see where it's coming from there I don't think that George Miller is like that kind of filmmaker to do that and not really Mm -hmm. sort of thread that needle a little bit better. Because if that is what he's doing there, I think it's really poorly done because there's there's so many other indications throughout the film of these are traits of people who are descended from Jin that that are like sort of present that it would be kind of surprising if that's what he's doing with this. I think that I just sort of read it maybe more superficially as saying. You know, Alethea spent a lot of time with the Gen in a quiet Istanbul hotel room, and has returned to like loud downtown London, overwhelmed by people she doesn't like and sounds that she finds sort of obtrusive, and is overwhelmed in this moment. I just sort of read it much more superficially, but it's interesting. I could, I, I do see what people are saying there. I just don't, I don't think that's what George Miller is sort of interested in doing. Yeah, with his, with his characters.
0: Yeah, i think i agree with that too it's not really necessarily something i thought about while i was watching it either um and i don't really know what that would mean or what that would change about what we take away from the movie i guess ultimately um
1: yeah i wouldn't know what it
0: would mean either yeah yeah i will say i like the last scene a lot um i like the way that you know she obviously early on she feels like very comfortable in her solitude and then you know, the djinn brings out something in her that, you know, makes them fall in love. But I like that the movie kind of ultimately in the end, it kind of affirms both sides of the coin, right? It says, yes, sometimes we need to be in our solitude and there's, you know, nothing wrong with that if you are comfortable with it, which she obviously is. Mm-hmm. Um, but also every now and then, right? It's, it's nice to have, Companionship with someone that you care for. Um, The gin is not, you know, living with her, staying with her all the time like he was. every few years. Yeah. Yeah. He comes around every now and then to have a nice time. And that's enough for both of them. Like, that's the last line of the movie uh, is her saying, you know, that that is more than enough for her. Um, So I really like that idea because I wouldn't have really wanted the movie to go in the direction of saying, well, you know, everyone has to, she. She's got to be companioned up for her to truly be happy, right? Like she's never going to be happy with just her and yeah. her stories. Um, I don't think that would have been the right message to send. I guess ultimately is what I'm saying.
1: It's not the happy ending, but it's not that kind of movie.
0: It is a happy. It is a a happy ending, though. It's, yeah,
1: I meant more yeah. like going back to the fairy tale ending that you were.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. It's not the happy ending, but it is a happy ending in its own sort of way. Yeah,
1: it's a bit it's a bittersweet happy.
0: Yeah. ending kind of thing.
1: I would have much rather prefer the gento died and them be together, but of you know course, whatever. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um All right, Scott, anything you want to add before we uh we wrap up here?
1: George Miller rocks. Can't wait for Furiosa.
0: Bring me Anya in a glove or whatever. <laughs> um Right on. What uh what's your favorite scene or moment from the baby?
1: Yeah. I I mean vi- vi- there's I think there's different kinds of scenes here, right? There's like the the visually arresting scenes and then um sort of the, the the sort of brilliant story storytelling scenes. I think a lot of the really like visually captivating moments do get thrown into the trailer if you've seen it. Um classic whatever. But I I guess I'd go with it. there's this particular shot I think um I'll do something. I'll go something different with the cinematography where right after Tild- Tilda Swinton's Aletheia has opened the bottle and the gin has sort of, um, I don't know. What's the right word? Like emerged from the bottle. Emerged, and yeah. yeah. sort of permeated the hotel room. And then he like sort of like, dis- like starts to shrink and shrink down and shrink down and shrink down. And Alathea is like frozen in the bathroom or whatever is like fogged up and stuff because it's like right after she's taken a shower. and sort of like it, it it's very reminiscent, I think, in this moment of of the nope cinematography, but it, you see like the camera start to like basically explore the room as like you as the viewer like trying to explore the room. I found myself sort of like moving my head and um sort of craning my neck in my chair to try to see around the corner to see the gin for the first time. um you know, really great sort of capturing the what is so good about the partnership between you know miller and seal and the and crafting the 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 images on the screen so i really enjoyed that from a cinematography perspective but like i mean any of the stuff sort of like the fantastical visual elements from the stories i mean the first story in particular which i think is featured prominently in the in the in the trailer there's some like really great you know visuals of especially him being sort of sucked from like the ceiling pillar that he was hiding behind down into the in the bottle by King by King Solomon. I mean, that's a really arresting image, I think. Um, but yeah, there's a whole host that you could choose from.
0: Yeah, I just really like the whole, the second story. Um, is, in the castle, yeah. Right. Yeah, with yeah. Prince Mufasa, I believe is his name. And yeah. um, everything that happens there, I think, is maybe where Miller's able to show off his imagination the most. I mean, it's a really good story. But you know the yeah, the visuals are impressive. There's this whole this is one of the elements like I was saying that I think will turn people off of the movie, but one of yeah. the the Prince's little brother brother, yeah is basically enchanted by extremely overweight women, so there's a lot of nude overweight women that are walking around uh, during the movie and actually it's like
1: opening scene of nocturnal animals energy,
0: yeah well, <laughs> yeah, well credits, yeah um, but uh but yeah, the. That actually ends up playing a significant role in the plot, too, because one of them slips and falls, and that's how he crushes. finally gets out from underneath the, the top. I yeah. thought that was a nice sort of, but also I thought it was a nice, like, dark, a bit of dark humor that, like, he yeah. finally gets out. And then, what is her immediate wish is for him to go back in the bottle and be at the bottom, bottom of, of the, the ocean, ocean, basically. Yeah. um so i thought because it's a long story there's a lot of build up and it's like how is he finally going to get out and then he does and oh no you're back in um it's true so i thought all that and he was, was in a fish really good he was um all right let's put a score on it what do you give three thousand years of long 8.9 yeah i give it an eight um just a little bit lower but i really liked it um definitely go See it in theaters because I don't know how long it's going to be there. Uh, probably not too long. Um, and, you know, this is the type of movie that people should support. Um,
1: it's worth seeing right. on the big screen. That's for sure.
0: Yeah. And we got a nice little George Miller, like Tom Cruise yeah, style Tom Cruise you know, opener. Yeah. Uh, opener saying, thank you for coming to see this in theaters. You're welcome, George. You're welcome. Um, I expect that right. to be on the home release as well.
1: I'm kidding. <laughs> the ultimate.
0: All right, doll. Scott. Um, let's. Uh, let's go to a break here uh when we come back we are going to have some movie news to talk about um namely we're going to have some delays to the latest films in the dc uh franchise whatever they're calling it nowadays the world's a dc the dc eu who even knows who even cares um and we're also going to talk about the big movie story of the week which is the drama behind the scenes on don't worry darling uh so stay tuned we'll be right back Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, uh, things have been tumultuous, to say the least, in uh, the world of DC Comics coming to film uh, sure. for the last decade, really, um, <laughs> and, and beyond. Obviously, they had a big success earlier this year with The Batman, um, but yeah. everything that's going on with Ezra Miller and The Flash has really derailed things. Uh, sure. And now, uh, a couple of their upcoming movies um, including one that was supposed to come out this year, I believe um, have yep. been pushed. Um, you want to tell us more about it?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, there's so much that we could spend probably an entire podcast talking about with Warner brothers and being spun off from AT&T and acquired by discovery and all of the things that have happened. I mean, if you've been even remotely close to film news in the last month, you've heard about Batgirl and what happened to Batgirl being scrapped, even though the film was almost complete um that was sort of part of a lot of warner brothers cost saving warner brothers cost saving methods this doesn't seem like a cost saving method although maybe it is in terms of amortization and stuff but they've delayed shazam to shazam fury of the gods and aquaman to there's another there's a subtitle on that too something city i don't know lost city i don't know um i don't care i didn't like aquaman the first one probably not gonna like the second yeah. one either but these films, which I remember, I remember before was it uh was it before the Batman earlier this year where there was like a stinger of ev- of like every DC film project, including the Flash, which was then like subsequently delayed into 23, as well as I mean I I mean I, I guess to be fair, Aquaman two had already been delayed into 2023 as well into March, but there was like a stinger after after the Batman I think where it listed like every Warner Brothers DC movie that was coming out you know, in theaters that year and it was like, you know, it was Black Adam, it was Black it was um Shazam, it was The Flash, it was um Aquaman 2, like all these movies that were supposed to come out this year. And just like none none of them are coming out now except Black Adam. Because beca- because Shazam 2 has been basically pushed to um Aquaman 2's release date in mid to late March. And Aquaman 2 has been pushed all the way to Christmas of next year, holiday 2023
0: and which is when the first one came out actually it did come out
1: yeah i mean it made over a billion dollars in that holiday window in 2018 2019 Mm -hmm. 2018 2018 yeah because 2019 was joker um and you know holiday window 2018 and so yeah it's been pushed back it feels like what it is i mean to me this just feels like such a disaster um given all of the bad press that's going on because of things like Batgirl getting scrapped, because of Ezra Miller being an absolute disaster in almost every respect, and because, like, I like who is excited about Black Adam? Like, no one's excited about this. Like, surely no one is excited about this movie. Um, and the fact that that's all you're going to get. Meanwhile, they're, like, pouring $150 million into Joker 2 um, with Lady Gaga and Joaquin Phoenix. Like, I, like it just seems like, DC, like you said, has been a disaster for a decade, you know, pretty much ever since Nolan. It's not, I guess, not a decade because ever since Nolan's trilogy finished, Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy finished, like everything in the in the DC world has been sort of just in terms of films has been a disaster. Especially since you know, everything with Justice League happened and, and subsequent to that, but it, it somehow feels like it's, it's not getting fixed. It's not getting solved. It's like in a way it kind of felt like yes they like dc had struggled a lot but like there had seemed to be some sort of semblance of a plan that was starting to be enacted and work on the part of dc whether you like the movies or not i think is a totally fair question but they they had, they had generated a lot of successes before the pandemic aquaman was a success you know um joker was a success it did, we didn't like either of those films but they were successes and they had a plan to just make good movies which i think is probably like again whether you like the movies is one thing but like their idea was not to like was to scrap the idea of like really investing all of their time and energy into making yeah. an extended universe and just like making a bunch of movies that were good and i think you know we finally saw that with the batman earlier this year a movie that we both really enjoyed um and now it just sort of feels like Between the comments by David Zaslav, who's the CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery, about making a new 10-year plan. Like, I just don't even know what they're doing. Like, if there was news tomorrow that came out and that they were scrapping every DC film except The Flash, like, that's currently – like, I'd believe it. Like, that wouldn't even surprise me at this point. Nobody would care that much. Yeah, Sure, that too. But, like, it would just feel like such a disaster. I mean, like, technically, Batman 2 has not been greenlit yet. Like, the sequel to – to Matt uh Matt Reeves's Batman movie earlier this year. Just like psych- like how has how that movie not been greenlit yet? Like that's crazy. Um, that's just wild to me. I have no idea what's going on um in that respect. I mean, maybe they're trying to negotiate budget and, and slim down the budget because they are very cost conscious over there. But I don't know, it just it just feels like a, a big disappointment. Not because I cared about Shazam or Aquaman 2, but it feels like whatever <laughs> whatever momentum the studio had built up that would, I presume, like, eventually make movies that I would enjoy, whether those are just, like, the Matt Reeves Batman movies or whether it's other projects that eventually come out. Like, it feels like that progress has been derailed. Ultimately, it's not, like, the end of the world for me because I'm starting to sort of feel that superhero burnout that we've talked about maybe happening since, especially in the last couple years since the pandemic, but since Endgame in particular. Um, But it's, like, such a bummer because I loved the Batman movie. Um, Feels like... Everything is just sort of getting turned on its head. I do think that good movies will ultimately prevail over there. I do. I do believe that Um, like I don't I don't believe the Batgirl was going to be a good movie. I don't believe that any of these movies that have been delayed are going to be good movies, Um, but it's it's a really interesting predicament, I think, to find yourself in after you've, you know, essentially spent five years trying to overcome the trauma of Justice League as a studio. To then be sort of upended in this way. When you're actually starting to create successes. I love how I'm completely ignored that Wonder Woman is a thing that exists. Yeah. Um, well. <laughs> yeah I mean that, that film is a true disaster. That's worse than do. Aquaman. Yeah. Um, 1984. At least was. But yeah. I, it just seems like a real head scratcher to me honestly. Like I, I can't think of a reason why these movies. I mean I don't know why these movies are being delayed. Maybe their effects aren't finished. Maybe they're not going to be done in time. But it feels like some other reason. Like probably Shazam's getting out of the way of Avatar. Like I don't know. Like. There's got to be like some reason to be vacating these spots that aren't, the movie isn't done, but it seems like not a good decision for the, for the sake of the studio, at least it seems like a bad sign.
0: Yeah. They, they just can't get out of their own way. Really? I mean, it's they, they had such a, you know, big success with the Batman, a movie that did really well, a movie that a lot of people liked. Um, and it seems like, there you go. There's your jumping off point And, uh, you know, b- build everything around that, um, and they just they can't get off the ground with what the next step is. Yeah, I mean, the um, movie made
1: eight hundred million dollars, which is more to, enough to make back its budget. I mean, it's not a billion dollar grosser, but like it was still like like March, like audiences still pretty depressed. I mean, also the film was like a hard R rating, like it's very yeah. impressive return um for that kind of movie.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what to say. I, obviously, I have been going on about super terror, superhero fatigue for a while. Um, I mean, I would still like to see good movies made about these characters because yeah. we haven't, in the case of a lot of these characters, you know. When you, when it comes to DC, Batman and Superman are, like, the only ones who really successful movies have been made about.
1: Well, those uh, are the only movies you're probably going to get going forward, so.
0: Yeah. That's okay. Um. Which you know, uh, to my point is is a shame, but also, at the end of the day, these aren't really the movies that I am super clamoring, standing on my you know platform, yelling that we need. So you
1: don't want Margot Robbie more Suicide Squad?
0: Mixed feelings. I mean, I I, I do. Um, I think she's great in that role, but at the same time, Margot Robbie is going to be just fine. She's she's um, eaten either way. So. She is, yeah, going to be in pretty much every significant movie in the next couple of years, so um, I will be getting getting my share for sure there, but yeah, I don't know what to say, but they have certainly fumbled the bag, to say the least. Um, what
1: a beautiful segue into fumbling the bag in another way. Yeah. Uh,
0: Scott, I don't even know where to start with this. Cracks uh, knuckles. <laughs> Don't it's worry, darling is a movie that we've been talking about for a while, really yeah. since the first casting news was announced. This is Olivia. Ever since Wild. Olivia
1: Wilde was said to be directing, I think, too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This is her follow-up to uh Book Smart, her, you know, very well-liked 2019 directorial debut. Um, this is a you know a big buzzy movie with Florence Pugh and Harry Styles and Chris Pine and um, you know, some big name stars in it. Um And we've been hearing now for a few weeks about some tumult behind the scenes. Uh, Obviously, you know, we had talked, we've talked about some of this in the abstract previously. Uh, Number one being that um, Olivia Wilde is now in a relationship with Harry Styles, um, which has seemed to have developed on the set of this movie. Um, And number two being that Shia LaBeouf was originally cast in the Harry Styles role. Um and then um was dropped from the movie. And Olivia Wilde's story was that she fired him uh because he was being a jerk, basically. Um and I guess if you if we want to start there, you, chronologically that's the first thing that happened. Um, you know, Shia LaBeouf was supposed to be in this movie. Um and what we learned this past week is that um Shia LaBeouf was not actually fired from the movie, that he quit. Um, basically because it was not working between him and florence Pugh. um florence Pugh, um it seems felt very uncomfortable working around him this may or may not have had something to do with his the the allegations of abuse that have been made against him i think that's, I have I think that's some,
1: definitely a part of what it was
0: well i have seen some people saying that a lot of this stuff was happening before those allegations came out mm-hmm. so okay. it's difficult to say whether or not but Again, we know that Shia LaBeouf, even outside of those allegations, has like weird, very intense methods and processes and stuff that he um, apparently uses when he's in a movie. So that was making her feel uncomfortable. And obviously, Shia and Olivia Wilde were having conversations about this, um, you know, behind the scenes. And one of those conversations was on a video, which was released, um, in which Olivia Wilde is sending a message to Shia basically saying, I still think we can make this work. Um, if Miss Flo can, you know, see that it's not all about her or something like that. Uh, that's a paraphrase, but
1: Miss um, Flo um, needs a wake-up call, I think, is what she's saying. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It. Basically um saying that they she she and Shia are gonna try to do whatever they can to get Florence Pugh to suck up her, you know, misgivings about this whole situation. Uh, obviously not sort of the environment you wanna create on your set. You don't want to be pressuring your actors. To, um, to be working in some sort of uncomfortable environment, but that is, it seems Something that's exactly which he was praised for on Booksmart. Yeah, yeah, it seems like that's exactly what um, Olivia Wilde was doing. Um, and Shia LaBeouf ultimately, like we said, he quit the film. Uh, you know, presumably because it wasn't it wasn't working. Um, so he was not, in fact, fired, which is the story that Olivia Wilde had told to a lot of media outlets. And Shia LaBeouf released, you know, his own side of the, the story backing up backed up with proof. look like i'm not happy about it either right that shia labeouf actually made some points here um but i have seen people being like you're really gonna believe him like he's an abuser and all this stuff well yes but the
1: man has receipts he,
0: he, <laughs> he has text he has a video like i'm sorry like he can be a garbage human being and he can also be right about this um and i think he is but um That is, you know, sort of the tip of the iceberg. Um, We had because we had already heard going along with this, you know, we'd already heard basically that um, now that Harry Styles was cast uh, to replace Shia LaBeouf, and this relationship developed between um, her between Olivia Wilde and and um, Harry Styles, that basically Florence Pugh ended up having to direct large parts of the movie or oversee large parts of the movie at the very least because Olivia Wilde and Harry Styles were very distracted with each other and basically only, you know, cared about each other. Um, Florence Pugh, her actions or lack thereof seemed to back up um, also what's going on. I will say that that last part, I saw TikTok
1: yeah, um, was kind of that.
0: what, yeah. what uh, you know, I think broke open the dam by somebody who worked on the movie. Um, but Florence Pugh has really not promoted the movie at all on her social media. And af- after all of this stuff came out last week, Her publicist or um, whatever said that. It was then released, yeah, yeah. that she is only going to appear uh, at the Venice Film Festival to do press for the movie. And actually, what I read even further into it was that she's only appearing in Venice uh, because she's going to be close by with filming Dune too um and right. it's, it's in like, hungary that's right yeah yeah in uh and so it's like i was in the neighborhood so i'm gonna pop by and do this i was but in the
1: eurozone I, so i'll, I'll roll I through
0: i don't think i owe anything to you people and frankly i don't think she does either it sounds like this was a horrible experience for her in particular um specifically
1: as it relates to olivia wilde
0: and harry styles
1: it sounds like but yeah, maybe maybe basically. specifically olivia wilde i don't know how much beef she has with harry styles but
0: For her number one having to be made very uncomfortable and working with Shia LaBeouf, and then when he was when he was um, you know dropped and replaced by Harry Styles for her then having to deal with the director just seemingly
1: super unprofessional
0: gallivanting on her own, yeah, yeah. Um, So I I feel for for Florence Pugh, and I certainly respect her decision to not do any press for for this movie. I, I Like I said, I don't think she owes them anything, especially if she, and especially if it is like people said that she ends up, ended up directing like, you know, parts of the movie, like she has done more than what was certainly asked of her or that should have been asked of her. So, um, a lot going on, obviously with this movie, I guess the, the questions now are, is this going to, is this movie going to be good? Uh, because we were excited for this movie, Scott. Oh yeah. Um, and, you know, it certainly has a lot of pieces to be good, but I think there are a lot of questions now about how could such a toxic environment on set produce, you know, results um, with mm-hmm. the actual film. And I guess the other question is, what does this mean long-term for Olivia Wilde in particular, because she has definitely come off looking worse than anyone in this whole thing. Um, and yeah. how does this affect her future as a filmmaker, And are performers still going to want to work with her after this?
1: Yeah, I mean, an interesting question. I think when you were sort of posing it, maybe more abstractly, when we were talking back and forth the other day, I said, going to depend on how well the movie does. (laughs) Like if the movie ends up doing really well. I mean, I guess, yeah,
0: money ultimately is the... Well, yeah,
1: there's two things. There's two sides of it. Like studio's willingness to work with her is going to depend on how well the movie Mm -hmm. does at the box office. Now, actors wanting to work with her on her movies is obviously another question. Sure, I'd be curious if that was Florence Pugh's experience. That's certainly an interesting one. I'm very curious what like Chris Pine's experience on the movie was. Yeah, you know what I mean. Because like ultimately, most people aren't going to be the leads in, um, you know, in Olivia Wilde movies. So, is it just because she was the lead that it was a difficult? Is it just because, like? You know, Harry Styles was in this movie. Is it just because she didn't care what Florence P. wanted because with the whole shy situation? It, it could also be all of those things, right? So it's it, as an actor, you know, I think it's probably going to depend on you know how much influence you have. If if you're like an, you know a, like an already made A list actor, like maybe you just don't even want to bother worrying with Olivia Wilde. But if you're someone who's like an up and coming actor who feels like this could be a big chance to break through. You know, maybe you're willing to to make that sacrifice, make that risk. I don't know. Um, Florence please again seems really bad. Like, it seems really, really bad. Um, but was only one experience on the film, so I wonder if most of the other actors on the film felt felt like it was similarly toxic or similarly chaotic. Yeah. Um, it just sounds like a super chaotic environment to be making a movie a movie in, especially if like Olivia Wilde's like not even doing her own job on the film. It's like pretty crazy. Um, what was in that TikTok at least was pretty crazy
0: um yeah i was gonna i was gonna say like if 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 we can believe what's in that tiktok that seems like it would be something that would affect everyone in the movie like it would seem not that way. correcting the movie um yeah i but, mean yeah if
1: you have yeah. what who's it like uh is it constant who else is it constance Wu? who else is J- in this Jim movie jimmy chan, I think Jim it's Jim and chan yeah jimmy chan chris pine like all the, like there's other people nick too kroll, i think is in it, yeah right? nick kroll like all these people who just had like terrible times on this movie like that's that's not going to be a secret in Hollywood if they if they all were pretty miserable making the making the movie. So,
0: and we do know that uh, Olivia Wilde is already working on I don't know if it's film, filming it or what that other movie um, about Carrie Strug that has Thomas and McKenzie in it. Um, or don't that, don't uh,
1: how dare her attack Florence Pugh and Thomasine McKenzie in that yeah, movie? Um,
0: she's working her way through the actresses, I guess. I don't know. Uh, are they gonna Are they gonna Is she gonna make a big deal about uh, uh, Thomas and McKenzie if she feels uncomfortable working with I guess whoever they're getting to play Bella Caroli in this movie, who is uh, notorious for actually having been inappropriate with uh, with gymnasts. I you don't know what's I really crazy is that, that I actually heard
1: that that. Harry Styles is gonna break up with Olivia Wilde and he's gonna start dating Thomasine McKenzie during the production of this film.
0: <laughs> Harry Styles as Bella Caroli in <laughs> <and> the <laughs> Carrie Strugman. Um Yeah, Scott, I, I don't know what to say here. Like, I have lost a lot of respect for Olivia Wilde and um, I think this is a, a, a really, really bad look for yeah. someone of her.
1: Style. It wouldn't surprise me if that movie doesn't happen.
0: Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, But I think there is going to have to be some penance paid and some atonement um, performed before I feel comfortable supporting her uh, again in the future. I mean, of course, I'm going to go see
1: more. She has to make another Tron movie is what you're saying. She has to go back and make a Tron movie.
0: Uh, No, no, no. I'm going to go see, don't worry, darling. I'm going to see future films that she puts out Probably, It's not a question of, like, I'm not going to go see her movies. Because I've seen plenty of movies by people who are a lot worse than Olivia Wilde. Um, but Weird flex, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I've seen know, multiple films by Roman yeah. Polanski, like uh, yeah, yeah, you know. know,
1: you've seen all I the like Weinstein movies. movies. It's fine. I understand. I, I like movies.
0: It. What can I say? But um, but yeah, like, I like. I don't. I don't really think that's that's the point, right? Like, I you know, again with the whole Shia stuff, I think a lot of people are being a little ridiculous of like, you know, constantly bringing up his abuse allegations and and whatnot, which. Of course, like I, I believe them and I think he's a garbage human being for having done what he did to FKA Twigs. It was his former partner. But that doesn't have anything to do with this story. Like, I'm sorry, it doesn't. Um, it, it's just I don't know. It's it, it's distracting. And the actual facts of this um, of this. Incident suggests that Olivia Wilde has done a lot of unprofessional and inappropriate things. And yeah, maybe they're not, you know, on the same level as what Shia has done. I, I don't disagree with that. But they don't have to be for us to call her out and criticize her for, for doing these things. I mean, you're always going to be able to what about what somebody did and say, oh, well, you know, this person did something worse. Um, but I just think at the end of the day, she needs to be held accountable for what she's done here. Whatever yeah. And I, that
1: I think that that probably won't be some sort of like public <clears throat> bloodletting. But I think if, again, all these things we're saying is true. I think you'll see a sort of the proof in the pudding of like, who's in her next movie. If she makes another yeah. movie. I think, I think you'll sort of. See Gibson. The, oh my God. All of a sudden she's directing that. Uh,
0: what is it? The, the Hunter movie? Biden movie. That's coming out. <laughs> 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 she's
1: directing like the, the John, the John wick spinoff that has Mel Gibson in it or something like yeah. that. Oh
0: my God. By the way, if you have not seen the trailer for the Hunter Biden movie that's coming out, featuring uh, Gina Carano, of course. Of course, um, yeah, obviously. It's, uh, Playing Hunter Biden, actually. Directed by Robert Davi, who uh, is a character actor who was in, like, I, he was in Showgirls, which I watched recently. He played, like, the scumbag, one of the scumbag guys that um, that Elizabeth Berkeley works for in Showgirls, which, like, I guess he was playing himself because he's directing this Hunter Biden movie now, which is basically just a QA non-propaganda. But um, on that note, Scott, uh, (laughs) anything else? What a lovely
1: last news story. Yeah.
0: Anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Oh, you
1: didn't give your thoughts on the trailer. I really want to hear your thoughts on the the trailer.
0: Have no thoughts, except the guy who is playing Hunter Biden. Um, He looks... I thought it was Pete, Pete Berg. Like I legitimately thought it was Pete Berg when I was watching the trailer because he looks like Pete Berg. Oh my God. Uh, But then I went and looked him up. His name's like Lawrence Fox or something. He hasn't really been in anything significant, but, um, it's strange. Um, no kidding. All right, Scott. Uh, I think we can, we can officially wrap up for this episode now. Uh, where can our listeners find you on social media?
1: At Eshelson2013, where you can find me talking all about the Hunter Biden movie whenever I see the trailer.
0: And you can find me doing the same at Scarvy Dent on all platforms. We hope you enjoy this episode. If you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash pods. But even if you can't support us over there, we hope you'll rate, review, subscribe, like, do all the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And, of course, we hope you'll we be back for our next episode on which we will be reviewing the Regina Hall, Sterling K. Brown, starring comedy drama, Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul. But until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey, we'll see you down the road.